talk is about uh, the begging bowl. I had an experience yesterday where I was out in an area that I don't get to go to that much, um, but it's a swamp nearby that I know fairly well. I was uh, observing a new beaver lodge that had just been made out by the edge of the swamp. And it was so new that the branches in the lodge still had uh, the leaves on them. So the the leaves were red and and gold on this beautiful round lodge that the beaver had just made uh, for the winter. Then I looked over to uh, near where I was standing, and there was a tree that the beaver has almost uh, chopped down. And the beaver, if you don't know, they eat the bark uh, as well as knock the uh, trees over for their uh, lodge and dams. So this tree had just been chewed almost through uh, toward the bottom. And it's an oak tree that has a very red heartwood. Uh, so the sap was dripping out of the heartwood just like tears would uh, come out of our, our eyes. When I was seeing this uh, sap would come out of the tree, I remembered that I had had a dream just like this about a year ago, uh, but that I had been watching a woman touching the heartwood of the sap pouring out uh, near a beaver lodge, just like, just like it had happened yesterday. We don't usually get deja vus with our dreams uh, in real life, so I found it um, interesting to pay attention to, to bring mindfulness to that experience. Uh, And there was a sense of just all of us, you know, here on the planet, struggling to survive on this planet, struggling to make sense out of what we're doing here. Autumn is particularly a poignant time because uh, it's such a, a season of change. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is this, what is this passing? Now, what is it that lives through such a time of death uh, into winter? I find that this is probably the most powerful time here to do a retreat, a long retreat especially, because we see this outer shedding, uh, and it's the same kind of shedding that we're doing. There's a letting go, uh, and there's a way in which we have to come to terms with what this means for us. I also, the past week, have found (coughs) two dead porcupines. I don't always get the chance to look very closely at a dead wild animal. And both times I had the time to be able to stop and look very closely. And I didn't realize that a porcupine's hair looks very similar to my hair at this age. You know, it's just got a little of the uh, light white (laughs) at the ends of them. Um, I don't have the quills. Uh, (laughs) And they have these beautiful uh, hands. Uh, And they have black leather, like on the outside, very black, smooth, uh, beautiful inner and outer hands. And I felt, again, when I was there, like I was in the swamp both times, that sense of... uh, just what it is for us to be together on this planet. You know, what is this 
that we all are actually eating each other, really, to survive on this planet. And how do we, how do we cope with that? You know, and what is the deeper meaning? Albert Einstein was asked whether he was afraid of death. And he said, I feel such solidarity with all living things that it does not matter to me where the individual begins and ends. There's such a difference there between that sense of struggling to survive and finding that deep understanding of interconnectedness. And this is what we're doing on the retreat, is really starting to feel the poignancy of existence itself and seeing, is there something deeper than life and death? Is there unchanging life as well as changing life? So in this practice of being here on this planet and going back and forth between that struggle for meaning and receiving the understanding, it's important to ask what the Buddha had to say about how we live. The Buddha encouraged humans to become monks and nuns because it's easier uh, to come to a deeper kind of peace because we're so protected in that monastic life. When I was in Burma the past two years, uh, I met an American monk who has been in the Ajahn Chah tradition for 10 years. Uh, and he studied and practiced in England for 10 years before he went to Burma. I have run into him at this cave <laughs> nearby the monastery where I've been teaching in Upper Burma uh, twice now. And he goes for alms round in this village called Wachet Village, which is uh, the village that supports the monastery where we practice, Sayadaw Ulakana's monastery. And it's the village where we have the hospital and school and water project there. And monastics aren't supposed to look up to the faces of people that put the food in their begging bowl. They're supposed to keep their head down and not look up as a kind of renunciation. And he said that when he went into the village of Wachet to, to do his alms round, or whenever he goes into the village to do alms round, the people are so kind that he can't help but look up. In, in the 12 years he's been a monk, it's the only time he hasn't been able to uh, keep that rule. And when he looks up, it's like he says, it's like his heart breaks from that just sense of utter, uh, genuine happiness of offering the food to him. And then he feels so inspired by that and the gratefulness uh, that he has to these people that it keeps him going. The Buddha taught that if you knew what I knew, you wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. And there's so many levels of understanding with that. You know, it's that honoring that level that all of us are struggling to survive. And even when we offer an ant a crumb, how important and powerful that is. Never mind helping in a soup kitchen or offering 
food to someone who wants to practice. So there's that there's a level of deep understanding of interconnectedness where we couldn't let a meal go by without sharing it. When I'm in this village in Burma, I feel like the children learn this in the womb. You know, there's some way in which they pick up by osmosis that uh, valuing of generosity so deeply. And it's not like it's an effort because they experience the happiness. They get that direct feedback of joy, the joy of giving. It's so powerful that when I was um, visiting some families over the three weeks that I was there, I was supposed to be on eight precepts. Um, Saito Uwakana wanted me on eight precepts. And when I would visit this family in the late afternoon uh, that were so poor, and they would uh, fry some bananas and sugar, which was something they would never have an opportunity to eat themselves. They would never have uh, be able to do that. And they would offer it to me. I would go with the monk that would translate for me, and I would look at him, and I would be like, what do I do? What do I do? Because either way, it's like everything I do is observed in the village. It's like (laughs) whether I ate it (laughs) uh, and uh, received their generosity or didn't eat it and kept the precepts, everyone would know. know, And it was such an interesting moment of watching myself uh, try to lean toward one or the other, and I looked at um, this monk, and he said, eat it. (laughs) You know, it was just like the bottom line is these people are giving you their gold. And it brings them so much happiness that how could you not eat it? One of the things that saddens me about practice in the West is is how out of touch we are between that relationship of of the begging bowl, of really being able to see that uh, we're supported by the generosity of all beings to do this practice. Uh, Because sometimes um, it can feel so disconnected from our own people and our own culture. Uh, And we don't have that joy of being connected and supported in that way. It's here. It's here in this building. It's here with the staff uh, supporting us in the teachings. Uh, And it's very important when we feel really down at times to remember that, you know, to remember that utter dependence that we have on the people supporting us to be here and all beings. It It can quiet the heart. It can energize the mind, and give us inspiration to keep going. The imagery of the begging bowl is so important in terms of the Buddha's teachings, because on every level, this practice is about letting go of control. It's about just taking what's given. The meaning of the word begging bowl in Japanese is just enough. Learning to receive our meals here 
and the happiness of receiving, the happiness of the humility of receiving. Receiving requires letting go of control. It can sometimes be more difficult than giving because of that necessity of letting go of control. And if we can follow through with that act of letting go of control and really receiving our meals here, we will start getting in touch with that sense that each moment is just enough. So not only do we live from the generosity of others in the struggle to stay alive on the planet, in fact, everything is given, we can understand deep interconnectedness through the power of generosity and receiving. But the begging bowl, the imagery of it, is not just about with food. Each day, there's a way in which if I don't have time to sit, I try to at least put my hands in the position of a bowl. And just to try to start the day with the intention to receive the teachings of that day. You know, that no matter how difficult or easy or whatever, that uh, we can miss the teachings in the day uh, because there's such a stream of dissatisfaction that runs through our lives. So that often, if the day wasn't quite up to what we wanted out of it, it won't be good enough. You know, look at your sittings and your walkings and see the subtle or overt stream of dissatisfaction, it's the most difficult thing in our lives to deal with. It's, what, it's where we miss the spiritual nourishment because it's like a layer uh, that blankets any kind of ability to receive and to experience joy or gratitude. So if you look at the day, on a day of retreat, do you wake up with that sense? And I wonder if today will be just enough. Or is that sense of striving that's so deeply embedded embedded in our hearts there, you know, that really ruins uh, what we call right effort? Has today been just enough? Usually, or unfortunately, we usually get more than enough. You know, it's not that we don't have enough. It's almost like we're overwhelmed that there's so much uh, to actually be mindful of. Uh, that we're, It's like we're in this great abundance or uh, bounty of teachings. Uh, but it's just that we don't have an attitude that where we can receive them and learn from them. So if we learn to be mindful of the experience of loneliness, I can assure you that it'll be just enough. And if you can learn to be mindful of the experience of weariness, it'll be just enough. Or whatever, you know, the restlessness, the doubt, the happiness, the ecstasy, the cold, the new moon. You know, each one, each star can be just enough. And certainly, if I look at the Big Dipper in the north, and I see it as a Big Dipper, for me, that's just enough. 
And if I see it not as a conceptual uh, pattern in the sky, that's just enough. So the relative level, the absolute level, they're just enough if we, if we really have that relationship of receiving and learning. In fact, for me, the Big Dipper is a place where I've always learned to orient myself. It's uh, that big bear in the sky that uh, teaches me my direction. If we can learn to relate to our lives, our moments, with this begging bowl mind or begging bowl heart, uh, we can slowly, and I mean that very truly, slowly start to shift that attitude between the comparing and the judging uh, to this intention to understand. Uh, And this shifts us out of that struggle to stay alive on the planet to being in touch with that spiritual intention to be here, to learn. I was walking along the road today, uh, and very far up the road I saw this being coming toward me. And I couldn't see what it was yet. Uh, and it was as it was coming toward me, I could feel the whole body and mind going, "Are you friend or foe?" You know, <laughs> what you know that there's that immediate, "What is that? Is it go- is it a threat? Is it okay?" Um, if you're very quiet, you might feel that walking through the dining hall, or walking out to where you sleep or whatever, it's like, it's not just with animals, it's with other beings. You know, it's our way of, it's our, it's our conditioned way of being here. Without the mindfulness, we get lost in that. A yogi told me recently that when they were doing walking meditation out on the front lawn here near the road, uh, she overheard some neighbors walking by Uh, And they were looking at us here and looking at people doing the slow walking outside. And she heard the person, one of the people say, they do that all day. (laughs) 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 And then she thought, they do what they do all day. And it's, it's just so interesting because we get that sense, you know, that wherever we are, householder, uh, yogi, monastic, you know, that we have to deal with that sense that we're repeating over and over, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, touching, thinking. You know, it, here it's a little more clear. You know, there it's like I'm in the grocery store going through that line again, you know, trying to find a place for the grocery cart. You know, whatever it is, you know, paying the bills, doing the dishes, that it's that repetition. Do, is this a new talk or an old talk? Do we like the same old song or do we have to find a new song and a new song, a new sitting? You know, it's like it's endless, the repetition. There was someone on staff here once that uh, had a sign on his desk here, and it said, there are no Sundays in samsara. (laughs) 
So it's fairly clear, you know, why we can get into that sense that it's not enough. When we get that sense, oh, do they do that all day? Uh, Do we have to be mindful for the next week? And if we think we have to be mindful for the next week, it's impossible. It's too heavy. In fact, you're lucky if you'll be able to have that intention to be mindful the next second. That's possible. To try to say, I'm going to be mindful for the next five seconds, will start to get heavy because it's already getting caught in time. A yogi job is a great place to watch this. It's so ordinary, it's so simple, and yet it's repeating enough to get that sense of watching how our minds relate to the same old thing and how different it is each day. This is great. You know, I always used to pick, watch, uh, cleaning the bathroom in the upstairs of the Catskills. That's where they used to put the women. I don't know what they do now. (laughs) Uh, But just to watch all the different ways in which I would go into that bathroom to clean, whether it was just getting it over with, you know, how fast could I do it to get to the next sitting, or the walking, or could I just be there with the warmth of the water and washing? Or did I get grumpy when somebody made a mess? You know, just over and over again, getting that opportunity to watch my mind in relationship to the same thing. That's what we're doing. We're not trying to make an extraordinary situation here, or we'd probably design it differently. It's like we're trying to take what is ordinary, like the breath, like seeing, like walking, uh, and really face that repetition. It's the only way we can learn about timelessness, is to really face that. One of the basics of um, mindfulness meditation is vitaka, vichara, aiming, connecting, And I think it's important to listen to that word, connecting. You can think of receiving for aiming or aiming. It depends what works for you, and probably both both will at different times in the practice. Uh, But there's that sense of making the connection with our attention with something. And this is really important. You know, what is disconnection? And what is disconnection? feel like? And what does it feel like when we make that connection with the breath, or the connection with the sound, or the connection with weariness, or the connection with desire, or the connection with aversion? This is what's so important. We're making a connection with life versus not being here. And so if you heard about aiming and connecting, Uh, for the next 30 nights, it wouldn't be enough. It can never be enough. It's like that, just that simplicity of receiving and connecting, or aiming and connecting. It doesn't change when we leave here. It's the same if we're driving. You know, it's important to touch the steering wheel, to connect there, to be aware of seeing.
whatever it is we're doing, making the connection. The Buddha taught that if we can do that, if we can sustain it, and that has a lot to do with my talk on the courageous energy. It's like if we have the courage to face the dissatisfaction, to face the repetition, uh, and we can maintain this aiming and connecting with some degree of continuity. And again, it doesn't mean that we think all day, because if you think all day, you're going to just climb into bed and pull up the covers. It's like, forget it. It's just way too much. But if you think, maybe I can make a connection to the next moment, truly, it's like the begging bowl. You know, it's like something has been put in the bowl, and you get to receive it. And certainly, that connection is usually enough. So the Buddha taught that if we sustain this aiming and connecting, depending on the context of the list that one's using, whether it's seven factors of enlightenment um, or, or the jhanic factors, uh, what, what uh, happens if we maintain it sometimes, if there's enough energy or courageous energy, is interest. Uh, and so the interest doesn't depend on whether it's pleasurable and pain or painful or neutral. In fact, the joy, joyful interest is uh, the happiness comes from uh, us overcoming pain. And so that it's such an intense delight to become interested in boredom. Uh, because the, it, 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 there is nothing like it for eroding the ego. If we were just living in a world of pleasantness, you know, it, this would be a different story. Uh, but all of our instincts in terms of basic uh, survival is to move toward the pleasant. And so that courage it takes to face how life is uh, and to be with the neutral and the unpleasant as well as the pleasant and to start to become interested in this, this is the rebirth, this is the awakening. Uh, the Buddha called this joyful interest the gateway to enlightenment, the gateway to awakening. And certainly you can't have that agenda, you know, that kind of mechanical agenda of if I aim and connect, then I'm going to get what I want. I'm going to get interest. Uh, Because that's just wanting. And that isn't based on the truth of how things are. Uh, It requires a, a, a more, a deeper level of intention. And so if we're, if we're paying attention in order to get something, uh, then it's not going to be enough. But if we're paying attention in order to receive whatever's happening in that moment, uh, there's that purity of heart. You know, it's that purity of the begging bowl. This is why I'm saying that imagery is so important, uh, because that renunciation and simplicity of letting go of control of receiving whatever food we get in the day, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. It's the same with our practice of receiving moments, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Mm. 
the other aspect of this, um, which is so important, is that the interest is actually energizing. Uh, so you don't have to f- make the energy and practice come as much as have the courage to keep working with that stream of dissatisfaction and, and try to just bring that aiming and connecting. It, it really is that simple. The other aspect of that is that it takes energy to let go of what is known. And so if we're really going to uh, be with whatever comes into our bowl, it requires <laughs> letting go of what was in the bowl yesterday. You know, so say we got, um, hmm, <coughs> chocolate covered eclairs or something. Well, maybe that's too sweet for you. <laughs> maybe it's a uh, pear crisp for dessert or something uh, with confectioner sugar on top. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever you really like. Maybe you really like uh, kale. <laughs> uh, well, whatever, you know, whether it's kale or pear crisp or something, but, um, you know, once you've had the pear crisp, when the kale comes, you know, there tends to be a little bit of the wandering, you know, out of the moment to that comparing, you know, and that judging. Mindfulness is that ability to let go of the past, to let go of the future, and this is just as important. Letting go of all those moments that you're projecting having to be mindful, as well as all of those moments where you haven't been mindful in the past or have gotten caught. Uh, And just being here means that you let go of the known. And this requires incredible insecurity. But it's, it's the wisdom. It's really knowing that the truth is, is that you're never going to get the same thing in your bowl. You know, it's not the same. It's, it seems like it's the same old stuff, but actually it's because we're not paying attention. That it is really new. And that's what we're doing here. We're renouncing all of the daily household busyness of survival. Uh, to build up enough energy to see the moments not as just the same old stuff, but to start having the energy to be here more fully. And so this is um, why in a a Buddhist culture like in Wachet where it's still alive, you know, people will give anything to you to practice because they, they value wisdom so much. They value this process so much. To truly receive a breath, for example, we have to understand change. You know, there has to be enough understanding to let that breath appear, live itself out, and disappear. Or we won't be there. You know, or it won't quite be good enough. If we really let go of control, that breath will be enough. And we receive it, let it go. Uh, and it all depends on if we value 
that process enough to get it. If we really arrive here, then the past is just a thought. And we see that clearly, we understand that. And the future is just a thought. We see that clearly and understand that. Uh, and we realize that we hardly have now. You know, it's so fleeting. You know, that it reminds me of somewhat like these incredibly beautiful leaves that once they're on the ground, and they're so beautiful, but they're brown. And it just seems like in moments, that's how fleeting it is. And that's the joy of practicing in this kind of setting in autumn. You get that sense of the poignancy of the beauty, but also the fleetingness of it. And this has something to do with mindfulness, but also love. You know, there, there has to be some sense of um, it's a kind of tenderness that appears with the mindfulness, you know, to, to let a moment really take birth and pass away. The attention cannot be uh, hard or rigid. You know, one description of joyful interest is the soft heart of a child. Uh, that that kind of quality of freshness of beginner's mind has has this uh, tenderness in it. The retreat that I a self retreat that I did this past November here, um, I had such a close look at the comparing mind, and it wasn't so much you know comparing you know the last retreat with this retreat, although certainly. I've had uh, my full of those kinds of uh, moments. Uh, I've tasted those a lot. Um, But this was much more momentary, uh, so that I could see that dissatisfaction between just the last moment and this one, that it was just that comparing mind and how it would kill the interest. You know, it would kill the joy rather than just to be able to receive. Just just one little thought of comparing with another moment, it was like that ability to receive was gone. And it wouldn't be enough. And it's extraordinary how, whatever you call it, whether it's the judging or the, the criticizing or the comparing, uh, sometimes the criticizing can become the opposite of tenderness. It can become so cruel. Uh, and harsh, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. It's like whenever, whether it's very subtle or light comparing or very hard um, criticizing of the moment, uh, it's definitely not the begging bowl heart, and, it, and it's so painful. So the comparing mind really kills the possibility for aiming and connecting. It kills the possibility for gratitude or for joy. And I see that that overlay of comparing and judging uh, is often a defense of ours against the experience of worthlessness or jealousy. So if you look carefully, 
when we're judging a moment of, as not being good enough or someone else as being not good enough or we judge ourselves as not being good enough, um, it will either lead to the experience within ourselves of worthlessness or someone else as being worthless or there'll be a jealousy that we really need what they have. Uh, and then, of course, there's that sense of life not being good enough. If it gets extreme, we'll just have that sense of utter not wanting to be here. It's so painful. There's a song by Billie Holiday from way back. Uh, she was a great blues singer. And she said, uh, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And this is, this, this is it. This is the practice. In one moment, if we can't let go of the past or the future, if we can't see that judging carefully or the comparing, we're not in heaven. You know, and it, it isn't dependent on pleasure or pain. It depends on that ability to really let go so completely that we receive. Aiming and sustaining the attention or aiming and connecting or receiving and connecting, it's not just about with the breath. It's not just about with the movement of the leg and walking or with the sound or the body. But it really includes the mind states and the emotional states. Uh, So some people were really affected by the question this morning about the nothing's happening times or the neutrality of that and how we relate to that. Uh, And it's important to see that we can relate to our judgment that nothing is happening in our practice uh, with the same relationship of connection. So if we can aim and connect the attention to the mind state or judgment that nothing is happening, you know, we'll actually, it'll actually get in our begging bowl. Uh, and we can be mindful of that experience. You know, we recognize it, we can accept it, we can explore it, we can be interested in what the experience actually is like, free from our ideas about it. The conditioning around nothing is happening is immense. You know, the reaction to it is actually quite intense. Or sometimes it can be subtle. But we can learn so, we can learn all about identification through the experience of nothing's happening. We wouldn't need any other experience in life. We could learn all about equanimity. We could learn all about mindfulness. We could learn all about the separate self. We could learn about everything. Uh, And it's so interesting to see how you relate to it. Does the attention go, oh, no, not nothing's happening? Or, oh, no, not neutrality? Or I want more. I want more than this. Uh, So many times over the years, if somebody says nothing's happening, I'll say, when nothing's happening, something's happening. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so funny because something's happening when nothing's happening. <laughs> you know, but we get so, you know, we believe that thought so much. And then the uh, identification starts. Uh, and 
then usually there's a lot of fear. You know, there's a fear of what it means about our practice or what it means about ourselves. Uh, And there'll be that sense of failure that we get at the practice, you know, and that we're never going to get this and how long have we been doing it. And you can just feel that heaviness that just, oh, no, I'm worthless. You know, it's just hopeless. All from that inability to shift to being mindful of that mind state. There were times when I would um, go see Sayadaw Upandita in my early years, and usually, most of the time, he was quite aversive. And so after my interviews, and I, I had to see him every day, every morning, you know, day after day, you know, year after year, I'd go see Upandita, and um, it was, he was usually very, extremely, I'd say, aversive. And I would go walking after my interviews, and I would just note unpleasant, 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 aversion, aversion, for about an hour or two, until I could you know, recover from the interview and then kind of go on. But then, at a certain point, he started acting neutral. And it was so much harder. You know, I looked forward to aversion. You know, if he was aversive to me, I, I, you know, I'd pray for aversion. You know, it was like neutrality, for some reason, was so awful. And it took so long for me to be able to just explore, what is this? And it was like this terror of being annihilated. You know, it's just like somehow that neutrality meant that I I didn't exist. Uh, So look carefully at neutrality, because we often want the extreme, even if it's painful, of intensity. Because again, we'll make this assumption about our existence itself, that somehow that neutrality will annihilate us. So that we, we can explore so much through nothing's happening. Now, you might not have this sense of excitement about this like I do, <laughs> you know, but I can tell you that I learned so much uh, about that fear of annihilation through neutrality. You know, so it became, again, more than enough of a teacher. It took me a long time to learn how to be mindful, even of that fear of the neutrality. It's such a breathtaking practice. Some of you might be old enough to remember a song Uh, by Peggy Lee. It was an intensely melancholy song uh, where she seems so weary of life. Uh, The name of the song, I think, is Is That All There Is? You know, and it's kind of a... just goes on and on, like, oh, God, is that all there is to life? You know, and it's... um, But it kind of would get underneath my skin. You know, it would somehow get in there and I'd be singing it, even though I didn't want to sing it. And sometimes songs that appear in my mind on retreat are really an indicator of what, where I am. So if this song comes up, you know, duh, 
you know, usually like there's weariness. <laughs> you know? It's not like I'm ecstatic. They're, they're like signals for uh, where, what the landscape I'm in. Uh, and when that weariness appears, uh, what kind of interpretation do we make? Again, what kind of proliferation? Uh, and is it something we just try to get through until we can get to more of a happy state? Or can we shift on it and go, oh, weirdness. I think one of the greatest achievements in practice and in life is when we can shift to being interested in something like weariness. It's very nature is to feel like we can't do that. And yet I have found that it's such a relief when I can allow that state. It's like, oh, I don't have to run from that anymore. I can just learn to experience it, and it's okay. Uh, And that's the way it is with all this stuff. It's like, if we have the strength or the protection of the mindfulness, which really think of as a begging bowl, because the mindfulness is when we truly can receive and connect with what's happening, experience it, not take it personally. And also, it's the spiritual nourishment. We can learn so much about understanding and wisdom through whatever appears, not just the pleasant stuff. I was in a a cafe on the Big Island recently, And Stephen and I have been in a process of buying some land on the Big Island in Hawaii for a meditation center. So we have been in and out of this particular cafe many times. You know, there's that repetition. Uh, And this uh, cafe owner has a cartoon calendar of Gary Larson, you know, where there's a Gary Larson cartoon for each day. Uh, And Gary Larson did a whole series on hell, uh, which... I had the great opportunity earlier this year of being, you know, in this place a lot where I would get to read the different cartoons about being in hell. Uh, And one of them actually struck me as quite funny. And, you know, comedy isn't always um, a universal experience. So if you don't find this funny, I won't be hurt if you don't laugh. Uh, But there's a, a picture of these two men that have just arrived in hell, two guys who've just arrived in hell. And then there's two guards, you know, who've been there forever. Uh, and one man says to the other guy, they thought of everything, even the coffee's cold. <laughs> They've thought of everything. You know, whoever designed samsara, you know, you know, just look at one day for us, and it's like, whoever designed it, it's like, They've really thought of everything. <laughs> you know, if it's not, you know, some back pain, then it's the anger, you know, and then if it's not that, you know, the power goes out. You know, <laughs> so there's that endlessness of the dissatisfaction. And then can we bring the radical mindfulness to it uh, to shift out of that state and wake up? When I was in uh, Burma this year, uh, I started to get to know some of the nuns in a nunnery. Uh, 
quite right next to our monastery. Uh, and the nuns' life is very difficult. Uh, they go on alms round once a week in Mandalay, which is quite far from Sagain. Uh, and they don't receive as much as monks. And if they don't have uh, generous supporters, they hardly get enough food to eat. Uh, but they manage. Uh, and this nunnery, the roof leaks a lot. Uh, and it's not an easy life. Mm. And they seem so joyful. I mean, I just love going to visit these nuns. And one night, a bunch of us went to visit them. Uh, and again, there's that just out of nothing comes food you know, to eat and the happiness that they get from feeding us. Uh, and we were there fairly late at night, and it was um, very dark. And they have maybe one kind of bare light bulb that hangs down. And in Burma, electricity um, the government doesn't exactly provide a lot of it for the people, so it's quite unpredictable when you're going to have it or when you're not going to have it, uh, no matter whether you're wealthy or poor. Uh, so we were in the middle of just about having this meal, and the nuns were working in a very difficult, to me, situation of trying to cook it, and the power went off. And the nuns just started clapping, you know, and they were so happy. You know, and they were clapping and lit a few candles. And then, you know, it took longer for the meal to be prepared. And we were sitting there with one candle in the dark. And maybe two hours later, the electricity went on and they started clapping. <laughs> and there was no difference. You know, in their mind state, it was like, it just, it was just the change or something. You know, it was just, it was extraordinary to me to see just that evenness of, you know, clapping. Uh, it was wonderful to see that equanimity and the joy that that brings, uh, which is what this talk is about. And that's being able to receive each moment with that utter simplicity of letting go of control. So that seems like it's probably just enough. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.